Certified, qualified, West Side host Steve Lucky Luciano. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into the Hard Luck Show. And we're coming at you from the Pico Youth Center in Santa Monica, California. Sitting across from me is my co host, my partner. What we got today, Chumahan? A special it, show? Yes, we do. We have it's Chumahan Bone, American Indian, Southern Californian, elegant barbarian, bringing you another special once again in conjunction with producer Danny Marillo, California Families to Abolish Solitary Confinement, funded by a grant from Unlock the Box. We are bringing yes. to you a show about the legal battles involved in solitary confinement, and with us today. We have Edward Dumbrique. Yes, sir. And his father, Pop, sitting uh, shotgun Jesse over there. Jesse. We also, of course, have who else, Steve? Oh, we have our great, incredible showrunner extraordinaire, Schwartz, with us. Thank you very much. The flattery is. Thank you. Thank you. Mate. Big part of making this happen with Unlock the Box. <laughs> and, of course, our audio engineer. Take care of all of our needs. Uh, Old Blue Eyes himself. Right. Yeah. Old Blue Eyes, sound check in, sir. Sound check? Yep. yep. Okay. Are we yeah. all good? Yeah. We're okay. Good. All right. Good. We now throw it live to Edward Dumbrique. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Jesse, man, I mean, Edward is just this guy. We're, we're going to let him tell it, but I tell you, man, I was really, really starting to get taken back just by hearing the beginning of the perimeters of mm-hmm. this gentleman's story. I mean, I'm going to let him talk and tell us. So, Edward, uh, where do we start then? He's talking about this beginning. What, what is the beginning? Um, the beginning for me was uh, I was 15, charged with a crime I didn't commit, ended up getting convicted, uh, tried as an adult, sent off to an adult prison, uh, and uh, stayed there for 24 years before I got exonerated. I was recently... Uh, okay. All right. Hold on. <sighs> Oh. That was the summary. Yeah. Let's now first, you guys see what I'm talking about? Yeah, holy shit. All right, let's now start. We got a lot, we've had a lot of lifers, bro. We have a lot of ex-lifers. Yes, sir. Oh, I have a yes, lot of guys sir. on here 30, 40 years. I've been listening. Yes, okay. sir. But we do not have a lot of gentlemen come on the show that have been exonerated and wrongly convicted like yourself. We haven't had the opportunity yet. And so it really is, when you hear those numbers being thrown out there and that you're exonerated, it's a, it's a lot, man. For somebody who has no idea what's going on. And I appreciate well, that. All it, right. Uh, I just want to jump in real quick right because on. we have with us yes. uh, the expert, Jules, who uh, is a legal uh, expert, I think, a professor. Absolutely. And, uh, go ahead. Jules. I am a professor and, and a uh, lawyer. And both. a lawyer. So an expert at something, I would say, uh, <laughs> with those credentials, right? That's right. So, the professor right. the professor is a distinguished gentleman. He's a boss. He's been on civil rights for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. He's helped in Wisconsin to, to deal with the solitary confinement Oops. issues they've had there. Mm-hmm. He came to California, and, and uh, he sealed the deal, absolutely. Fantastic. Okay, so welcome aboard. And can you give everyone how we pronounce your name properly so they can look up any of your published materials and or where you're speaking next? Jules Lobel, L-O-B-E-L. 
Rhymes with Nobel. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. I love it. Okay. And so so part of this discussion is going to be um, uh, the Ashker versus Brown case. And also, maybe you can update us on what's going on with Milliken if you've um, had a chance to review that case as well. In conjunction with uh, Edward's story. And we were just, Mr. Lobel, we were just getting to the the very beginning of Edward's amazing story, which starts with... At 15, you were convicted of a crime you did not commit, Commit, correct? That's correct. So what was the crime they claimed you had committed? Uh, It was was, uh, 187. It was a murder. uh, And um, they they ended up uh, focusing on me and, and the detectives and the district attorney. They uh, they pursued us and they, they they got us convicted. How many people were convicted of this? Crime? Me me and my co-defendant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me and my co-defendant. We were both exonerated uh, just this year. Okay, hold on. Before we get to that, I just want to because a lot of people see stuff that goes down. And professor, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a lot of quote unquote common sense people that say, "Hey, where there's smoke, there's fire." I don't know exactly what happened, but they must have done something. So they're not going to feel compassionate when, in reality, you were innocent. Absolutely. Did it? So take us back to being 15. You're 15. The heat's coming down on you. And where is this approximately? Like what part of the city? It's over here um, in uh, Harbor Area of L.A. Right. Yeah. And so you're actually trying to tell everybody, hey, I didn't do this. Yeah, well, I'm at 15. You don't you don't really know what you're supposed to do or not to do. You you, you kind of have faith in your attorneys. Mm-hmm. You're looking at the system and you're hoping that uh, for a good outcome. I thought I was going to get found not guilty all the way up until the point that they found me guilty. And it was. It takes a long time to to work that to work that out to reverse that. It's the most difficult thing that uh, someone can do is get a conviction reversed, um, especially uh, as a, you know to be exonerated. It's it's hard to get the district attorney to say we concede that uh, we convicted the wrong people. Okay, if we, before we get to that, so uh, Professor Lavelle, what makes it hard, especially in a case where a gentleman really is innocent? What makes it hard for district attorneys to backtrack or change their mind or, or I mean, aren't they supposed to be for what's the law and order and what's true? And, and why is that difficult? Yeah, I think that the basic problem is, as you say, the district attorney is supposed to be for the truth. But often both they and the police convince themselves that what they've decided is the truth. You know, they decided that Eduardo was guilty. And therefore, that's all they're going to think about. They don't they don't reflect and try to uh, figure out what happened from an objective perspective. They just get into their own subjective mentality that we got the guy. We got the right guy. And we're just going to go at it as hard as we can. In fact, I think a great thing for everybody in the audience to see is the film about the Central Park Five. Right. Where he were also five guys who were innocent. And yet the police and the DAs you know, went after them and were convinced that they were guilty when it was really of their own subjective making that they were guilty. They weren't objectively guilty at all. So, Professor... And they were eventually exonerated also. So, Professor, as I hear you discuss this, and I know you're an attorney, so aren't there constitutional protections that are supposed to at least balance the scales so that somebody like Edward or the Central Park Five get a fair shot at a hearing? Well, there are supposedly constitutional protections, and this would get us into the Ashker case. Right. Um, But the constitutional protections require, number one, a good lawyer. Right. 
and most poor people don't have good lawyers. Uh, and they, uh, they also, there have been tremendous obstacles that the Supreme Court and the courts have set up to make it almost impossible to challenge your convictions and, and win. Uh, so it's a rare case that you get some, I mean, it's not totally rare. There are a lot of people who are exonerated, but it's very difficult, as Eduardo showed. And it's the same thing with the Ashkevi Brown case. You know, here there were a thousand people, over a thousand people, languishing in solitary confinement. Mm. Most of them, or not most, all of them had been put in there for nothing that they had done in prison. Right. But just because they had some alleged affiliation with a gang. Right. And the affiliation could just be that they had a tattoo or that they had a birthday card or that they had artwork. Uh, and yet you couldn't find an attorney mm. to challenge that. Uh, Asher wrote to, I think he testified to over 100 attorneys. It's hard to do it. And all these guys tried to challenge it on their own. And without a lawyer, the courts uniformly slammed the door on them. Not uniformly, but... Ninety-nine percent of the cases. So, so right uh, before we, so this is a good point. Uh, so, why don't you tell us what's the difference between a poor person's attorney and a rich person's attorney? Why is the rich person's attorney able to get uh, a, a fair shot than a poor person's attorney? What's the difference? Well, there's the main difference is that, for example, in many states, when you get an attorney, a public defender attorney, right. Uh, that attorney only has very, very limited resources. They had, they don't have, inter they don't have investigators. Right. They don't have money to pay for uh, getting transcripts. They don't have money to pay for um, depositions and all those kinds of things. So you might get poor people's attorneys who are very, very dedicated. Uh, now, often that's not the case, but even when they're very, very dedicated, the lack of resources is overwhelming in the criminal justice and in and in challenging even prison cases right we, uh why no because no no i was gonna say right because i was gonna say the state and the police right they're funded by the taxpayers they have almost unlimited resources not only that but they also have the reputation of the state mm -hmm. they have the 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 sheriff's supposedly the guy with the white hat so they have all that going for them. And I can tell you that if you don't have access to records, mm -hmm. it's real hard to bust up a procedural aspect in the law. Mm. If you get access to records and you have a, a wealthy enough attorney that's got enough time to not only look at the transcripts, go through it with a fine-tooth comb, find one or two good-faith arguments to make like, oh, the police screwed up right here. That's not how it's supposed to happen. If you don't have that kind of energy and that kind of resources, you'll miss that chance to uh, obstruct or at least cause there to be a true inquiry into how the process, your due process, was screwed over by the police or the system or whatever it is. Edward, so your attorney, when you're 15, what did you get? Who was your attorney, not in name, but was it a public defender or what was it? We had a paid attorney. We had a paid attorney and it still didn't work. Um, it's uh, you have to be uh, your own advocate more than anything. If you can have the education to put yourself in your and defend yourself, that's the best thing. Right. Work with your attorney. Um, that's that's probably the best thing. Get a good attorney. The professor uh, dealing with the solitary confinement issue. Right. 
uh, you know, he's he's worked well with with us, the jailhouse lawyers. And um, ultimately, we, we produced um, solid results. We were able to get everybody out the shoe. Right. We, we set some good standards uh, for, for CDC to follow. Hopefully, they, they do. And uh, hopefully, we don't, we don't find ourselves back in the situation where you got people doing what? decades and decades of, in, in solitude. You yourself spent how long? How much time? 13 years. 13 years. Yeah, I did 13 years. And was your attorney, was it one of the ones that you see in the meme where, like, the attorney has screwed up shoes or, like, like <laughs> baggy pants and they say, if this is your attorney, you're going to jail? Was your guy like that? No, he had a suit. He had a suit. <laughs> but what? What he just didn't. He wasn't the able. Key, to... The key thing, I think, there's two things, and one is what Edward said, and the other one out. Um, even if you get a paid attorney, um, the attorney has to have the time and the resources, right, to deal with it, and the inclination to deal with it, right, um, and the commitment. And uh, many of the paid attorneys that you get. Uh, as opposed to the attorneys, let's say, that O.J. Simpson got, mm. right, don't have the time and the resources to do all of the investigation, to do all the research, to look over thousands of pages of documents. So that's one key thing. And it was translated into one that once you get to prison, you don't get attorneys and they don't challenge being put into solitary confinement. The other thing that Edward said is critical when you're a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, most of the poor people who are get caught up in the criminal justice system, they don't have the knowledge themselves right. to be able to help themselves out. And the, the thing that I found most surprising or most interesting about the Ashka case is how much the prisoners themselves understood the law, helped us out, came up with theories, when we first started the case, we had a due process theory, but uh, but most courts, almost all courts, had ruled against individual plaintiffs who had challenged their being put in solitary confinement, being put in the shoe in violation of due process because the courts just routinely steamrolled them. Right. But um, but then Edward came up with a theory because he was doing a lot of the research on his own. And he came up with a theory and he sent a, a you know, a, a long memorandum to me, a memorandum of law. And I looked at it and, you know, some attorneys might just say, well, what does this prisoner know? I looked at it, I read it, and I had litigated the Supreme Court case in the area. And I said, well, you know, I don't think this, I don't think we're going to get anywhere with this, but maybe it's got a shot. Let me research it more. And I put in some time and energy, and I realized that Ed, Eduardo was absolutely right, that he had caught something that had escaped even the attorneys. What was and the so, theory? What was the theory that you caught, Edward? And I, I think this is when they amended Penal Code uh, 2933.6, where they started to remove our credits, our time credits. Right. And now, now mind you, they, they, they put us in solitary as a non-punitive administrative segregation decision, which is we didn't do anything. It's purely for uh, administrative reasons is what they say. Right. But then when you take your credits from you, now you're interfering with my prison time. Right. My ability to, to work my way out of prison or to, to get these credits. And in order to do that, you have to give sufficient due process. And, right. And, it, and so when they did that, they did us a favor because it gave us an avenue to get in there 
and make that argument. And uh, they they were wrong on that front, and they were they were just rubber stamping everything, and they've been doing that for decades. Right. And it was that uh, it was that was one of the things, and the, the the attorneys they had some some good good arguments too. We brought them together, and uh, the court, the judge. Uh, she she refused to dismiss them. She- right. So let's let's pause right there because you're saying due process, professor saying due process, and I kind of understand that. But really, when we're talking about Edwards, is saying like I had a, an interest, a freedom, a liberty, and or property interest in something. When you're challenging due process, there's actually legal tests, two part analysis, or whatever you have to go through in order to show first, I do have a right that's being violated, or I have an interest that's being violated, and then two, there isn't adequate uh, protections and or guards to ensure that I'm not being cheated out of my constitutional right. Is that about right, Professor Lobo? Or do you yeah, want to I think to that? you got it in your layman's term. I think you got it pretty right. And the key thing here was. Uh, being thrown in solitary for years and years and years clearly deprived these guys of a liberty interest. So right. we knew we were going to win on that. Mm. But then the question is, what were the procedural standards right. that the court would use? And as Edward said, if it's an administrative preventive thing where they say, you guys, we think you're going to be a troublemaker in the future. You're going to be dangerous in the future. It's a very uh, uh, easy standard to meet. All you got to do is what they were doing was, you know, saying, well, we have some evidence that you're a gang associate or something like that. Right. But now Edward comes along and he says, well, but they're taking away my good time credits. That makes it punitive. It's no longer administrative. It's punitive. And for a punitive uh, assignment to the uh, shoe or the solitary, the Supreme Court has said you need more process. You need you need to be able to call witnesses you need to be able to look at all the documents against you. You have to you have to get written, you know, like really adequate notice. Uh, and they weren't doing that. They knew they weren't doing that. So, so, so once we got once we got that theory and we developed it, but we worked hand in hand with people like Edward. And it wasn't just Edward. It was Todd Ashka. It was Satawa. It was um, uh, uh, um, George Franco. All sorts of prisoners were able to give us ideas. And this wasn't just one of the troubles with, I think, a lot of lawyers is they think, well, they know everything. These guys don't know much. And we're just going to litigate the case on our own. We took a very different approach. And we said, we want to litigate it with people like Edward and Eduardo and and really learn from them just as we bring out our, our expertise. And it was that combination which really turned the trick here. Now, listen, you got to look at this. This is real interesting because I read through the Ashker case, all right? So this case, when we say Ashker case, right, the decision was a decision to dismiss the lawsuit. The CDC had brought a motion to dismiss, and they had all these various reasons why the the uh inmates wouldn't be able to maintain this action now you gotta think about some of the dirty tricks they pulled in this dismissal request and you gotta also understand professor lobo's laying it out right too from at least from what i read from the facts of the case which is the the inmates themselves started it then when the attorneys who were really able to assist they created a class action and they had these guys be the the putative class members meaning they're representing all of the people that are being illegally held in right. this solitary confinement. 
And part of this case, the judge, the district judge, which means a federal judge, is relying a little bit on what happened in Madrid and Gomez, mm-hmm. right? Some of that informed what the judge uh, decided in this case on this motion to dismiss. So one of the things the CDC said was, yeah, they brought this and it might be true what they're saying, but guess what? We already changed everything. It's all better now. Mm. Like we, we've got this new disciplinary matrix and this, they used acronyms like STP and it's a pilot it's program. Step down program. Right. right. Okay. So they're coming in and they're trying to tell the judge like, man, this might be true, but listen, we're, we're all better now, judge. So this is moot. Let's take this out. Just dismiss it. And Professor Lobel, what was the court's response to that argument? Well, there were there were three things, and I'll talk about two of them, and then Eduardo can talk. One is, as you said, there was a case brought when Pelican Bay first opened. It was Madrid v. Gomez. So Pelican Bay first first opened in 1990, 1989, and in 1982, and 1992, there was a case that was decided, and the court held that you couldn't put mentally ill people in Pelican Bay, in the shoe. Because you put somebody like who's mentally ill in the shoe, it's like putting an asthmatic in a smoke-filled room. They'll just go crazier and crazier and crazier and eventually commit suicide or something like that. But the court held people like Eduardo who weren't crazy, you know, weren't mentally ill, you could put those people in there. And there were hundreds or thousands of people that they put in. So we had to get over that case because we weren't arguing simply for the mentally ill. We were arguing that nobody should be put in this situation. Right. Um, So that was the first thing we had to get over. And one way we got over that is to say, well, this was in 1992. Now it's 2012, uh, 20 years later. And there have been guys who've been in the shoe for 10, 15, 20 years. Right. This is a whole horse of a different color. You know, this is keeping people in these conditions for decades right. is different than keeping them in for a year or two. Right. And the court bought, bought that distinction. The second thing we said is, yeah, they could start with a, a pilot program, but they can get rid of it whenever they want. Mm-hmm. They, they, we, we want a clear commitment to, to uh, a judicial decree that says you got to change what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Not just we're voluntarily doing this and we can change it at any time. It's not it's not in it's not written in stone. And the third thing is this step down program that they they created was really bogus. Right. And uh, was not a real solution. And Edward uh, wrote me a long memorandum explaining this. So I'll, I'll give it over to him now. And yeah, no, in, in the step down program, I believe it's uh, it's like a cookie cutter program that a lot of prisons across the country have adopted and they have different versions of it but it's a a, i believe it's a four-year program they make you go through these behavioral management courses as a prerequisite to getting released from the shoe so you have to go and do all these journals and when as you complete them you start to move through the step down program and so they were presenting this as the alternative to the lawsuit we solved the problem no need for this litigation and um what what I uh, researched it, and it is a form of behavioral modification therapy. It's written by top psychotherapists in the country, the Change Company, and it's something that's being practiced across the country today. And the problem with it is, it's forced mental health therapy mm. that 
that inmates may or may not need, right. may or may not want. Right. But to condition your release from the shoe, from solitary, based on you completing that therapy, right. is a violation of our, our, our rights to refuse unwanted medical health no. treatment. Right. Wow. And, and really? So, and, and so that Damn. is something that... Um, even today, there's a lot of states in this country that have adopted the step-down program, and it hasn't been challenged, I think, in the way that it can be. And you use your state constitutions because sometimes they give you more protections. Right. In California, we have a pretty strong right to privacy, a right to, to make medical decisions on our right. own. And so these are things that CDC presented as the, the solution. And um, I, I was able to research it, present it to the attorneys, and they took it from there. Um, and it, it probably was a, 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 a significant factor in CDC coming to settle, right? Because they don't want they don't want that program ruled unconstitutional. Right. They don't want to set a bad precedent that the other states are then going to have to deal with. Um, these things are um, when you look at the bigger struggle to end solitary. Because in California, we've 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 made some good progress. But in the country as a whole, we're still dealing with it. There's a lot of people locked down right now, right? Uh, going through things, and they 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 don't have uh, an avenue or they don't have a way. Um, I have this petition, that, this memorandum that I submitted to class council that I, I'd be open to sharing with any attorney or people that want to advocate for themselves, right? Especially with uh, with regard to the step down program. Well, so I, so I, I, I want to just one second, yeah. professor, please. I yeah, okay. I want to back back up into Ashker so that. Um, people can really understand this because Edward and the professor are so literate in this struggle that they're like way ahead. And so I just want to kind of give you a, a sense of where yes, we're at. Right. Yes, yes. So, so CDC in bringing this motion to dismiss, just as Eduardo said, I'm sure their lawyers strategize like, if we can knock this lawsuit out here without setting a precedent, that's what we're going to do. If we can't win any of this, then we better go to the settlement table because we don't want a case law affecting and, and, and hampering us, okay? And in this, I really think about this because it wasn't just due process that was brought, which is to say, I have these time credits, the state is taking them away, and I'm not given the adequate procedures to make sure it's not done arbitrarily. On top of that, they've got a, um, an Eighth Amendment claim, which is cruel and unusual punishment. Mm -hmm. Now look it. When you're in prison, right, there's and you're saying, hey, this is cruel, and unusual punishment. You're kind of working uphill in a sense because you're already in a punishing situation and there's various levels, right, to prove cruel and unusual punishment. And at least in this case, the judge is saying, OK, the test is at the pleading stage, meaning you're going to bring a lawsuit. What do you have to actually say in your lawsuit in order for this to go any further? The court is saying, you got to first in a prison conditions case, which is what this is, right, Eduardo? Yes. Right. You've got to first say that there's a serious deprivation. Or you at least got to allege facts that show that. And the second part of that is the prison official, you have to allege an, a subjective intent from the prison official to put and impose those uh conditions so think about that it's easy i won't say it's easy but it's easier to say 
I'm in solitary for 10 to 11, 15 years. I have an insomniac now. I have memory loss issues. And most people would say, yeah, that's a serious deprivation. Am I right, Edward? It is. There's there's a lot more uh, effects that solitary has on people that um, I think are maybe not fully understood. A lot of it is understood, but it's not acknowledged. It's not respected. Right. Um, CDC having that knowledge, they still impose the harshest conditions that they can come up with right. in an attempt to break people psychologically. And that's something that needs to be addressed. It's still going on. And what what would you say are the other effects? Just so that people like Mr. and Mrs. Earbuds listening can say, like, give us some more effects of what long term solitary confinement does I mean, to somebody. One thing it it uh, it separates you from your family, right? You, you you start to lose contact. They make it very difficult. They play with your mail, so you can't sustain a good communication. You know, when your letters are coming three months late or all at one time, uh, they, they they break you down in 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 ways they try to. They're successful in, in, in a lot of ways. Even the guys that, that are not um, psychologically broken down, they're still very much affected by that experience. Right. Even uh, oh. me today, um, you know, I, I, I could say that I have an appreciation for life because I'm free now. Right. But um, without that freedom, it's still something that is going to stay with me, um, having, uh, you know, been isolated and through that experience for all of them years. What would you say would be, an, uh, you know, what are like maybe a surprising effect or something like you personally where you're like, I don't really, this is something that's going to probably be with me forever or a long time because of what I went through? Um, you know, it's the drive to change the system. The drive, the, 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 you know, it's, I have a passion for it. I want to do it. I want to see it change. I know it can change. And we've done some good stuff in California, but there's still a lot of families. California families against solitary confinement, that's that that's a place where the families come together, the inmates come together, attorneys come together, and we were able to make a difference. Now other states they may not have the organization and you know, you have to you have to work across um different lines, racial lines, all of these things. Um, got worked out in California so that we can come together and, and, and really try to improve our conditions. It's a model. It's a model for other states to take on, and um, hopefully, hopefully we can we can we can get there. Right? We can. Uh... Um, you know, as you were uh, uh, as you were saying, there were two issues. One was the due process issue right. that they weren't giving people proper procedures. But the Eighth Amendment issue said nobody should be subjected to this. Right. Doesn't matter what your situation is. This is torture. This right. is cruel and inhuman treatment. It's torture. And the reason that it's torture is that you're depriving people of what uh, neuroscientists and psychologists now see as a basic human need. Part of our basic humanity is interaction with other people, touching other people, hugging other people, talking with them. In some, uh, you know, uh, not in some person-to-person way, as opposed to just yelling across uh, uh, walls. Um, so someone like Eduardo, when he all the time that he was in solitary, he never touched another person in a meaningful way. Right. And that's part of what it is, make, is to be human. When you take away that, it's like you're almost like you're taking away food. You're taking a, away a basic humanity. Now, when you look at what the effects are, Eduardo mentioned some of them, but depression, there are all sorts of psychological effects. And we had two top-notch psychiatrists and psychologists who went and interviewed these people and said, 
even if they're not being driven totally crazy, they're still having tremendous psychological damage occurring, damage which will occur to them even after the case, after they leave solitary. In fact, after the case was over, the uh, Stanford Institute uh, at Stanford University went and interviewed a randomly selected group of people and found that their, their, the harm occasioned by solitary was still with them. Right. The other thing is there's physical harm, which Eduardo probably didn't recognize, but it's true that people who are thrown into solitary or people who even just because of their circumstances live solitary lives are much more likely to have hypertension, heart attacks, strokes. And this has been well documented with hundreds of studies and we had a social scientist run through the analysis of this, comparing people in the shoe with people in the general population. And there was a much higher rate of hypertension in the shoe because of the conditions and the stresses they were put on. The, the, I just wanted to raise one other thing. And when you listen to Eduardo talk and talk about the law, uh, you know, CDC said all of these people are the worst of the worst. Right. They're sort of like monsters. They're they're irredeemable. You listen to Eduardo and you know that that was false. Mm-hmm. And Eduardo tur- was innocent. But there are a lot of guys, even if they committed a crime. Are, you know, you can't look at a person and say you're you're the result of the worst thing you did. A lot of these guys were articulate, wanted to do meaningful things and uh, entered into an agreement with other ethnic groups and races not to be violent despite the tensions in the prison so i think a key thing has which should come out of this podcast and which should come out of our case is for people to look differently at people put in prison and not to say as we do you're bad evil people but to do instead what Norway does and to say you're you've done a bad act. People who have been found guilty and have actually committed a bad act. Yeah, they've committed a bad act and they're punished, but they could still have some very good qualities and be be uh, uh, have meaningful lives, and meaningful work. And when you listen to Eduardo, as I say, there are hundreds of people who are like that in that they're articulate, well-meaning, and they've done something really bad to let them get, uh, put them in prison. But we shouldn't discard them and treat them like they're dirt and like they're not human. And that's what solitary confinement does. And that's why it's abhorrent. Not just, not just do you have to give better procedures before you put somebody in there. We shouldn't be using this. And- it is going to be a sign of our civilization 100 years from now that we've done this evil thing to people. And 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 a and a good point on that one is uh you do have innocent people in prison. Right. Um but regardless you don't we don't torture people in the United States. We're not supposed to, right? I and and it, and it may not a lot of us have family members and friends that are in prison, but for even the people that don't. That's not to say that in the future that you're not going to have a youngster that gets snatched up wrongfully convicted and he may find himself in solitary and that's not okay it 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 applies to everybody when they violate our constitutional rights uh it's everybody's constitutional right that's being violated as the people uh, it it can uh you know it's not okay for one group and not the other because you don't know how tomorrow's going to play out right that's true 
and I'm not advocating this, but I do want to hear your guys' reaction to it because I'm thinking to myself about some uh, like Trump supporters, MAGA people who are going to say, <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, every once in a while there's going to be a mistake, but on the whole, we got to punish these bad guys and they got to know like what they did was wrong and why should I care? What about their victims? What about all that? How do you guys respond to that in relation to solitary confinement? Well, as, as some I did 24 years for something I didn't do. Right. Um, whether I did it or if, even if I was guilty, what, the, what you're in prison. Yeah. You're you're you have no freedom. Your family, your friends, their life as you know it is gone. Right. Um, and everybody's moving on, and so to put you in solitary on top of being in prison, and anybody saying, "Oh, that's good," that torture him, you know, get, you know, break him down. Um, that is not what we do in the United States. I hope it's mm. it's a constitutional. It also violation. wasn't what was prescribed in the court. What was prescribed in the court was you being sent to prison for X amount of time, not to be continued to be um, tortured while you're there. Like this whole punishment thing, man. You you're you're already getting it when you're in there. You're already that you're already put in this position where you have no voice. You're bad. You're no good from the COs and everything. Right. So you're constantly, constantly kind of, you're constantly being punished is what I want to say. Absolutely. The punishment came in the years that they gave you that you're removed from your family, that you got lost out. That's your punishment. So now try and figure out how to live in there if that, right? And and when you're not in solitary, when you're Mm -hmm. not in solitary, you're not in Disneyland. You're still in in a high security prison that's designed to punish uh, inmates. Sure. Okay, so 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 all right, that's an interesting argument. So so far I'm hearing one is um aspirationally in the United States, let's say, the land of freedom or whatever you want to call it, we're not supposed to be quote unquote torturing people. Second piece of that is what Steve brings up, which is like the actual meted out sentence doesn't include this extra enhanced torture that goes on. Professor LaBelle, what else would you add to that as to the reasons why we could say to people like, yeah, these are bad people. You shouldn't have committed the crime. Now you're in there. So what the fuck? Yeah. Well, the key thing, and, you know, Gabriel Reyes, one of the named plaintiffs, wrote an op-ed in the San Francisco Chronicle when we filed the class action. And he said basically what Eduardo said, namely, I've, I've committed a crime and I'm, I've accepted that society has a right to punish me. But you don't have a right to torture me. You don't have a right to put me in this kind of conditions, which is brutal. Can you explain the difference between punishment and torture for the lay people, Professor? Yeah, punishment. uh, There there are. When we when we say that somebody's done engaged in misconduct, engaged in crime, you can punish them in different ways. You can fine them. You can make them pay damages. You can send them to prison. Um, but what you can't do is do something which not just in the United States, but universally is seen as uh, uh, stripping the person of their u- human dignity, torturing them. So, for example, you can't get you can't waterboard them. Right. You can't cut off their hands. You can't break every bone in their body just because they've done something bad. Now, why not? Well, why not is because over you know 2000 years society has moved from a state of you know what uh, what we ex- what was accepted as barbaric 
to to say, well, you can't. There are certain things you can't do. You can't if you take somebody who's a criminal, who's engaged in crime. You can't put put them in slavery for the rest of their lives, right? Because we don't allow slavery in this country. Why not? Because it's inhuman. It's barbaric. But that's interesting. Uh, that's an interesting point. So why don't you take us to that? What is the history of the idea of cruel and unusual punishment? Why is that a phrase? Why were the early Americans concerned about it? Why is that in our Constitution? Yeah, because they were concerned that the British, they, they wanted to make sure that they had the freedoms and the rights uh, that British citizens had, which was not to be tortured. And through the Middle Ages, Britain, like most countries, engaged in torture. But eventually there was a struggle about that, and it was uh, held that cruel and, unus- and unusual punishments would be prohibited. Right. Uh, both by the British con- Constitution and by ours. Right. I mean, the Brits have a unwritten Constitution. Right. But they don't allow torture either. Right. In fact, the language that we use in our Constitution comes from that English Bill of Rights. Cruel Correct. and unusual right. comes from that. And that was, there was a struggle with the monarch. And I think part of the argument is, is yes, the, w- what level a person has dignity and that bare minimum of dignity is the standard of which we're supposed to hold our society at so that we can say we're civilized and so that we can say this is what we're going to do and protect things. But I also think in a fairness of trial mm-hmm. situation, and this gets back to the solitary confinement. When the punishments that you are capable of being put towards increase to a barbaric level, you increase the chances that somebody's going to falsely confess, false evidence, mm-hmm. false testimony, including like debriefing, right? Part of what goes on in solitary confinement is if you want out, you're supposed to debrief and say, oh, okay, and rat out, let's say, a, a prison gang or whatever's going on. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing you, is... You, they, you want, they want you to tell them what they want to hear is yeah, what it comes yeah, down to. Yeah. Exactly. And that kind of evidence over time had been shown to be easily manipulated by tyrants mm-hmm. in order to make good people who are fighting for freedom look guilty so that no advances by civilization or the rights of people can go forward. And that's really what it's about. And so when we sit back and we say, hey, these guys committed a crime, part of it is the freedom that you think you have is completely dependent on there being a very fair process. And that fair process in part hinges on nobody's going to face torture because if you're going to face torture, you might just lie. You might just be like, I I can't take it anymore. So, yeah, that guy did do that. You don't even have to do anything to him. They just know that it yeah. exists. Exactly. Right, right Professor? I, um, I totally agree with, you, with what you just said, and I think the reason to prescribe torture is twofold. One is it's inhumane, and second, it, uh, it, does, it gets you false testimony. Right. And that's what we found now in terms of the informants right. and their whole debriefing policy, that you know, the informants have this incentive to, tell, to say, as Eduardo said, whatever the the prison officials want well, well that was and, 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 i mean and 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 just for one second they used uh they used a gentleman to convict you right 
You said they found a syringe? Yeah, that's a long story. Now, I don't want to get into it here. <laughs> yeah, but, but um, again, they're utilizing people on the street the same way they're utilizing them in jail. It's a system. Bring them in, and we'll let you go if you give us this, this, and this. Right. It is, and it they is don't care system. if it's made up or not. Just they give don't. it to us, right? They don't care. They don't care. That's right. absolutely true. And then when you have that there's a privacy, in, uh, private interest involved in managing the prisons. Oh, boy. Right? So all of a sudden now, some of these government things even if it's food whatever it is are getting farmed out to private companies because they quote unquote can save money for the state and all this stuff and you include that we can torture people so we can get false testimony false evidence now you're mixing a a a motive a greed motive a profit motive on top of that and that can easily be abused and this is one of the reasons i think why california is starting to disengage from this private managed uh, uh inmate stuff right there's there, there has been legislation regarding confidential informants and their unreliability right um there has been some uh reforms on that front but it's not enough right mm-hmm. and and they've done some token reforms and i haven't went too deep into them to see how they're actually being applied in real time and um, if it's staying true to what the intent of the law is, but it's not enough. Right. And, and uh, the prison ruins people's lives based on these informants who are so selfish, self-centered. Uh, um, you know, they, they're um, all they're trying to do is save themselves right. at at the cost of whatever. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at can I, can I want to make a I want to make a statement real quickly and this has been my experience and I'm just gonna I'm gonna say this very quickly so you can kind of understand if I were in prison and I am accused of stabbing this person right yeah and they take us to the hole and they've got evidence they've got a knife there this this and maybe that even that the person that's stabbed doesn't want to identify me right or can't identify me but some other some other dude's like, hey, you know what? And he just wants it. And he goes up and says, I'll fucking. Right. That motherfucker did it. I'm going to testify. He's yeah. some dope fiend murderer that's running around the yard. Right. If they tried to bound it over and get that tried in a criminal court. Right. Outside of the prison in the county. Right. The DA might be like, that's not going to work. Man. This fucking guy's this and that. And right. He's got credibility this, issues. Just, we're throw it out. Like, right. So they throw it out. Gets denied. Prison uh, DA referral. Whatever. DA. Right. right? The, the 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 prison then has their own laws and guidelines right. and can punish you on what real society didn't even look at and wouldn't even acknowledge. Like, that's rubbish. Yes. You can't get it. They can now take it inside right. and now punish you on their own guidelines. Professor Lobo, can you speak to the shadow law system that's involved in prisons? Yeah, the one of the main problems is that the courts have said we can give prison administrators great discretion. So they've taken a hands-off policy to a a certain extent on these things. And therefore, they allow a lot of things to go on in prison that you would never allow in a regular civil courtroom. Um, And it's basically on the theory that prison administrators 
have to be given a lot of discretion. Right. And one of the things we challenge in this is to say, this is what they're doing with their discretion. It's terribly screwed up. It's unconstitutional. And you can't continue to give them this discretion. Right. But that that's the that's the upshot of it, that they get a lot of discretion. So in this Ashker decision, right, going back to the cruel and unusual punishment, and going back to those levels. So we've we've established that there was serious deprivation as shown by the effects. And and the serious deprivation, right? The second part of it is how do you show prison officials? How do you allege that prison officials are deliberately indifferent to the condition? That, and, that, go ahead. That, that was actually pretty easy because in our case, you had the guys go on hunger strike. The it's not the, the deliberately indifference means that the prison officials have to know about a harmful policy and do yet do nothing about it. Right. It's not enough that they should have known. They have to actually have known. But these guys went on t- two hunger strikes. They went on all. I mean, there was all sorts of petitions, letters to the governor. They all knew what was going on. That's number one. Number two, by the time we brought our case, there was a lot of psychological evidence on how harmful this was. And number three, um, California had bring, brought in its own experts uh, in what was not ever revealed until we brought our case, but three or four years earlier. And their own experts said, this is a screwed up system. You should change it. So there was no, we, we were going to be able to show deliberate indifference. I wanted to interrupt one second and I wanted to uh, introduce Dolores has just joined us. Everybody, Dolores, say hello. Hi. Yes, uh, thank you so much. I'm just here as a guest listening to this amazing interview. Uh, Dolores Canales, co-founder of California Families Against Solitary Confinement. And, uh, you know, just definitely admire these gentlemen very much. One, one of the character traits of uh, Professor Jules Lobel is that he is a lead attorney, not just for the plaintiffs that are incarcerated. Mm-hmm. He works with them. He is amongst them. He, he actually uh, acknowledges their, their legal uh, skills and he utilizes it to the fullest because they're the, per, they're the experts of their own situation and their own circumstances. Sure. Sure. I mean, it makes absolute sense, Professor, that you wouldn't go in trying to have all the answers. It would it would behave you to want to work with these people to be the best in this that you could be. You're getting all the inside information, correct? Yeah, we really got we really had uh, two groups of experts. The lawyers was a group of experts and the prisoners were a group of experts. And we both learned from each other and we both appreciated each other's expertise. I, I think that's not done enough in class actions. Right. People not coming together. And I I want to say, you know, we learned a lot. Um, and I certainly learned a lot from uh, a lot of these discussions about um, solitary confinement and how these things finally came together. I was moved on how uh, the racial uh, separation, all this had to be set aside in order for these men to start making any kind of gains within the shoe. I think we talked about it on the last show that ultimately they had tried to separate these gentlemen and put them in a pod in the shoe and they ended up coming together in that pod and creating, you know, uh, this movement. Where, where are things at now 
um, in regards to your case that you're dealing with. You've recently been exonerated from your case completely. Yes, sir. Was this gentleman helping you? Was the professor part of all that? The professor did. He reached out to some attorneys early on when I was uh, trying to get my case in the court and get it opened up. Um, we did ha- we did uh, come across an amazing attorney, Deirdre O'Connor, who helped us. And uh, she stayed on our case for 10 years and uh, seen it uh, to, to where we're at now, which is... Uh, Exonerated, moving towards um, holding uh, this the people accountable, accountable for the misconduct that they that they uh, committed uh, in securing that conviction. Let me ask you something, uh, and um, professor as well. When there's a misconduct uh, with something like that, is that misconduct aimed at the police station, the police officers, or is that something that's just aimed at the city? The, the, the city of Los Angeles, or or who is it that's really really held accountable for for that? Well, what it depends on what kind of misconduct. What 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 did you have in mind? What were you thinking? Well, I'm just thinking in his case, like will the will eventually will the officers and the people that were handling his case have to? I, I have attorneys right now, and they're 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 looking at it, and they're they're preparing uh, the the papers to file in the court. So um, exactly who's going to be held responsible, who's most culpable, who acted in concert, who knew what or should have known. These are all questions that are going to come out now. But uh, the good thing is, is that we were able to um, to 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 be free, you know, be able to 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 start our lives. uh, um, Yeah, start over. Yeah, absolutely. Professor, can you can you give us an update with what's going on right now? Is there's just I know there's a lot more work to go that's going on right now, and yeah, there is. Um, we were able to show that CDCR, even after the settlement, they they took most of the guys, almost all the guys, and they removed them from the shoe. Mm-hmm. So you know, people got out of the shoe, but and they were they were supposed to do two things, which they're they're not doing. One is giving people fair disciplinary hearings and training their staff to ensure that the confidential information used against prisoners is accurate. Mm -hmm. And by carefully looking at all the documents we got access to because of the monitoring, we were able to show that the uh, confidential memorandums that the investigators took from the informants Mm -hmm. were not what was told to the prisoner in many cases that the prisoner was told something that was fabricated that the confidential informant said x and the prisoner was told y which which made a big difference in their case so we were able to show that the the cdcr's use of confidential information still violated the constitution and because of that we got an extension uh, to the settlement agreement for another year. Uh, uh, we, we, we did the next another year of monitoring, and we showed that, sure enough, they're still violating the Constitution in the same exact way, even worse. So we've now filed for a second extension motion. Wow. Meanwhile, CDCR has appealed the first extension motion to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals is going to hear that later this year. The other thing which affects a lot of these guys is that when they were in the shoe, there was an unwritten rule that nobody would get parole. 
no matter how good your behavior was, no matter how you how eligible you were for parole and whether it was a good case for parole, you just were not going to get parole. Well, once they got out of the shoe, we thought there'd be guy, a lot of guys getting parole. Mm. Um, but instead, what they've done is done two things. One is they use the fact that you're gang validated to deny you parole, mm-hmm. uh, which they, should, they shouldn't be doing now because those validations were all gotten by unconstitutional procedures. Correct. And that's what uh, the lower court held in the um, first extension motion. We're now back on the second extension motion because mm-hmm. they're doing the same thing. But then the other thing that we've now uncovered is that when a guy goes to parole, they often give him a list of 20 confidential memorandums of informants going 10 years back, which he never knew anything about because he wasn't charged with any disciplinary misconduct for any of these things. They just sprung on him. There's almost no um, uh, detail to what the charges are, and the guy has no way of defending himself. So we're also challenging that. Uh And then we're also challenging a special unit that the settlement agreement created to deal with people who had safety concerns, um, but to treat them like general population. Instead of doing that, they're keeping them there for years and years, many of them indefinitely, and they're treating them like um, it's like a modified shoe in that it's very, very restrictive. When these people are really turning to them because they're in fear for their safety. Yeah. Well, no, in many of the cases, CDCR puts these people in the safe in the safety unit, even though they object to it. You know, in many of the cases that uh, CDCR says, we're going to put you here, even though the guy says I could go in general population and be okay. Gotcha. So the point, the broad point is the struggle continues when we reach the settlement which was a great victory for the prisoner class and got a lot of, you know, all the people, almost all the people out of the show. Um, We recognized that settling this and getting CDCR to move people out of the show Mm -hmm. was just the beginning of the battle and not the end. Right. We have to make sure that the procedures and the practices that CDCR uses to put people back into the shoe mm-hmm. uh, comport with the constitution and thus far they have not and they'll fill them right back up and and even well, how how those uh those procedures that were used and the violations that were committed to put people in the shoe mm-hmm. how they're having impacts on the people's eligibility for parole i understand because that. you know for a lot of us for me it took me 14 years to get my ged because they didn't have programs like that right. available in there now um I would I would probably already have a degree mm-hmm. if these programs were available to me right. in the shoe. Right. And so these are things that uh, the, the population is dealing with now. Even the ones that are no longer in the shoe, they're having to struggle in order to get parole or in order to catch up because they're so far behind after being um, in solitary all them years. Well, I, I and I want to you know because there's probably a lot of people listening that have some of the similar questions. I have friends that I communicate that I was communicating with them from the shoe, and I was communicating with them now that they're out of the shoe. And these are guys that have been in there 25, 27 years in the shoe, right? Right, right. And they're validated as, you know, those guys, it's that. 
And now they're on these yard. They're on different yards to hatch a pea. And you, 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 you hear since they am down. My question to you and to the to professor as well is, when you say that we sued and they settled in compensation, so is the compensation and the settlement for these gentlemen is is their payment in getting out of the shoe? Is that is that really the settlement? Is that what? Yeah, the, the settlement was a compromise, mm-hmm. and what the compromise was was that all these guys were going to get out of the shoe, get going back to productive, you know, to being at least more productive than just being warehoused in the shoe. Mm-hmm. And I get, I, you know, one other thing about the punitive model is that mo- many of these guys are eventually going to get out of prison, and you want them to get out of prison rehabilitated you know you want to get them to get out of prison with programs with some skills uh and all of our interest is in that you know it's not just the prisoners whose interest is in that my interest in not having people on the street who are just going to go back to crime and criminal activity is pretty important and that's what they're not doing in these places so well professor um, it's kind of like what you said though they're discarding these people up based off what they've done they're right. not treating these people as they're part of our, these people, these inmates, everybody in there are part of our community. Exactly. So whether they come mm-hmm. home or not, these are part of our community. And I think that when you mention Finland in this, their objective is to help these people, help them get better, help them heal, help them so that they can eventually come home and be members of our community again. And right. I think what we're doing in this country is, once they've committed these acts, they're being treated as no longer community members. We don't, right. We're not invested in how, what they do because we don't want them back or we don't want to see them back. And that's how they're being treated. And I think that's like, again, getting down to the core uh, of, of what's really going on. But our case, our, our class action was for injunctive relief. Mm-hmm. It wasn't for damages. Gotcha. Right. So, Which meant that what we wanted is everybody out of the shoe and for them to stop the practices that we thought were mm-hmm. unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to put necessarily a wrinkle on it, but so their class action was to make behavioral change, right? Like you right. said, injunctive relief. Policy changes. Exactly. Yeah. Now, as we discussed, the CDC, the governor, I think was Brown at the time, um, their lawyers, their legal strategy was first, we're going to try to dismiss this. And if it gets past that hurdle, which is almost all lawsuits have that initial hurdle. It's Mm -hmm. like, you know, is this even a properly pled, properly alleged thing? If we get past that, now we've got a real meat and potatoes discovery. Now we got something to talk about. Now we got an investigation discovery. Now this could get real ugly. We could lose control of this thing real fast. So then the CDC is motivated after that, especially in class actions. Especially mm-hmm. in class actions, because the injunctive relief is statewide or at least to all the class members. So people, institutions are motivated not to allow too much legal precedent in a class action or, 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 or rules in a class action because it's going to make change statewide changes. Right. Gotcha. So in order to maintain some semblance of control, they're saying, like, look, all right, fine, we're going to settle. We're going to come to an agreement. And there was. And uh, Professor, when that agreement's reached by the parties, do does the judge or does the does the court have to sign off on it? it the court did have to sign off on it, but I just want to correct maybe one misunderstanding, uh, you know, misapprehension, which is we the judge ruled on our motion to dismiss in early two thousand and um thirteen. 
they didn't settle right away. Right. It took till September 2015 to settle. There was some very hard litigation. We had to take depositions of their uh, of their officials. We had to bring 12 expert witnesses in. Um, and it only and we had to make other motions. It only was after a couple of years of further litigating of this case that CDCR said, well, we're going to settle because they realized they were going to lose. Well, what was, what was, what were for you then in, in starting that discovery process and getting under oath these deposition testimonies, where was the straw that broke the CDC camels back? Do you think? I don't, I can't speculate. I don't know if it was one straw, but I think one was filing our monumental expert reports, the psychologists, the social scientists, the neuroscientists, we also brought in two prison officials who had been leaders in other states to say what California is doing is out of whack with what other states are doing. Mm. We brought in the U.N. reporter on torture, to, and he testified that uh, in all of his travels around the world, he didn't know of one country that was doing yes. that was using solitary in the way that California was. Right. So we really, those expert reports had them pinned down. And then at the very end, they tried to move people through the step-down program. They tried to move people out of Pelican Bay and into other shoes around the state, uh, other solitary uh, units around the state. And we brought a motion to amend our complaint, to file a supplemental complaint to take into account these other prisons and where people were being moved, sent to. And the judge accepted that. And I think at that point, maybe CDCR felt that the, their game was up, you know, that, that they weren't going to defeat this lawsuit. OK, and, and um, then, so, <clears throat> Professor, so it was a combination of things. At what? So in so can you please walk us through from a litigator standpoint, from an attorney standpoint, what was the CDC's attitude like up until the point in time they decide, OK, it's now it's time to make no. nice nice <laughs> right and how does that and how satisfying is it from your perspective and did they was there like a call from the opposing attorney and they said hey listen why are we getting crazy professor lobel <laughs> well, i mean can't we let cooler heads prevail we're ready to talk like can you walk us a little bit through that part of it yeah until um <laughs> Uh, spring of 2015, mm. <laughs> their attitude towards us was like a stone wall. Uh, I mean, I could use some other expressions. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but their their attitude was really, um, you know, we're not we're not giving it an inch. Right. Um, then what happened? And it was very interesting. The attorney general's office did not contact me. They were fighting this tooth and nail. Um, throughout this whole period of time. Uh, but the uh, top prison officials actually contacted me and said, you know, maybe we should change what we're doing. And let's try to see, sit down and see if we can work this out. And at that point, the prisoners got involved, the lawyers got involved, but the attorney general's office was actually kept out of it mm. for quite some time uh, because the... It was the prison officials who were really motivating the change. Right. And the attorney general's office was just trying to fight and fight and fight and fight and continue to fight in court. So, <clears throat> Eduardo, once it started to look like 
they were really going to come to the table and have a discussion. How rewarding, or was it even rewarding, for that to happen? No, it absolutely was. Uh, you start to see a light at the end of the tunnel. And for me, in my own experience, having been there for whatever number of years and um, you know, just dealing with it, it wasn't until the end when they says, oh, you know, we got a shot to get out of the shoe that the place really started to come down on me where you start to feel like, man, I got to get the fuck out of here. Right. Like, how have I been here for so long? It's not until you, you can see the light. You're like, oh, shit, I can get out of here. I'm going to be able to see my family. I'm going to be able to talk to them. You know, I'm going to be able to interact and see the sun. You know, you don't see the sun in nope. the shoe. Nope. I was as pale as right. you can be where you can see my veins and everything. And I'm not a white boy. Right. It's it's crazy. Um, And so for me, it was it was the realization that we were that we were you know we were going to be able to get out of here and and you're still in prison but you really do feel like you just you're getting out of it's almost like getting jail. Rolled, huh? yeah, yeah, you're, you're, yeah you're in the jail under the jail yeah, yeah and they're letting you come back up one level and it it it, it um it feels like freedom you know i wouldn't call it freedom but it's 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 it, better it it, 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 it makes yeah. a difference and you can yeah. just just interacting with your family and th- these are things that <laughs> You know, you start to um, really appreciate life. And, and and what what about so? How long after the thaw of the shoe, when you go like, I'm really going to get out of here? How long after that were you exonerated for a crime you did not commit? It was uh, five, six years after that. My question is, just so that the listeners are clear about what's happening with you is. Obviously, during the time that you're dealing with all this with the shoe and the professors and all this, do you simultaneously, is your case going on? It's always been going on. And even with solitary, Uh um, I always felt that as long as I fought as best I could, that I could could deal with my circumstances. Mm -hmm. As long as I knew that I was doing all that I could, the outcomes can be what what they are, but for my own peace of mind okay i've did everything i've done everything i've read every solitary case and i prepared that memorandum to try to convince attorneys to come with my with my own conviction um i knew i was innocent but how do you how do you present that to the court Mm -hmm. your conviction is done and they're done with you right and so um it was for me just always having that fight and the law for me was something that um you can you can sometimes get before a judge and he'll respect your rights and give you a fair decision, and uh, that's what uh, that's what drove me, and that that's how I dealt with my circumstances. Always trying to fight my way out, mm-hmm. regardless of whether it was working or not. And so, how was it that you were finally exonerated? What was the actual mechanism? You know, I can't even I I I don't even know because it it. it it's been in court for t- 10 years and they've had the evidence for 10 years it took them but it took them 10 years to finally act on it mm-hmm. and uh, i would give credit to to our, our our district attorney george gascon who came in with fresh ideas and um you know fresh you know thinking of ways that they can improve the system um we went through a lot of district attorneys, and we right. happened to, to uh, district attorney Lara Bazan. She she um, she took a fresh look at the case, and I, I give her credit for that. And I appreciate uh, also my judge. We, we we got a new judge who um, really gave us a fair decision, and 
and ultimately uh, they they made the right decision and and we we got exonerated. So. so so the evidence was already there. The question was for them to look at it. it. Took them ten years. The officials finally look at the evidence and say, yeah. And when you're exonerated, does that mean your conviction is completely expunged from your record? I hope that's what it means. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm still fresh in the process, but the district attorney concedes that we were wrongfully convicted. Wow. And so, is there a a damages aspect to that? Do they say you were out of the workforce for 20 years, so we should owe you X, Y, and Z? Uh, there, there's a process. That, there's a statute that compensates uh, people that are wrongfully convicted. and uh, But that statute, what it says on paper and what they do in person is two entirely different things. And so were you in the institution when you found out that, yeah, okay, they did wrongfully convict you? And how did you find out that you had succeeded? Uh, my co-defendant was actually released. <sighs> my co-defendant was released, and I said, oh, my God, because our cases, we, we have the same case. And uh, that's when it, um, that was the lo- the last month that I did in prison was the longest month. Oh, oh yeah, dude. Man. Yeah, he what? got out a month before you? Yes. Oh. So yes. you know you're going. You just had to. But, you, yeah. but, but no, you, I didn't know, though. Yeah, because, he's right. You don't ever really know, right? I, I didn't know because you don't well, know. You're not so, out there until you're yeah, out there. And was yeah. there some part of you that was trying to keep your hope uh, back a little bit because you didn't want to find out that it, it, you didn't want to count your chickens before they hatched? Oh, man. I don't even, even want to think about that, oh, man, to be honest with you. It was, it was hard. It was hard. Oh. And it so hard. when you walked out, Right? Who was there to greet you when you finally walked out? My family, my my father, my grandma. You know, uh, my family was there. Uh, my my girlfriend at the time was there. You know, it didn't work out, but she was there, <laughs> beautiful, and, and and so it was it was a good thing, man. It's one of the best days of my life. And did you go to like some dinner celebration or what? What happened? I, I'm still doing dinner celebration. <laughs> <laughs> Better be, yeah. yeah. We're still doing celebrations. So can we ask your dad real quick? You can swing the microphone over to him. Uh, 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 Papa, father, how was it finally, after all these years, and knowing that your son was wrongfully convicted and it was a grave injustice, what was it like to watch your son walk out of the prison and, and into back into the family? Well, it was a tremendous feeling. You know, I've always kept the faith that he was going to get out. Yeah. From the very beginning. And I just kept that faith. I always, as I wrote him, I always let him know it's going to happen. Just keep the faith. And yeah, it was a beautiful feeling because, and we even went through a little difficulty because initially when they, I was in court that day when they, the judge released them, but the paperwork got hung up. This was a Friday. So we drove up to the prison. When we got there, they hadn't received the paperwork. Oh. It was about four in the afternoon. They says he wouldn't be out till Monday, that they had so many days to release him. We got in touch with the attorney, explained the situation. She got in contact with the governor's office and because he's now he's an innocent man. Right. right. You know what I mean? They still wanted to hold him till Monday because nobody was there to release him. He's an right. American citizen. They you made can't... some calls and uh, he didn't believe he was going to get out that day. Oh. But uh, it came through. The governor came through. I guess they got in contact with the district attorney's office. They told the, the prison, uh, release him immediately. They had to call one of the captains into the prison to sign the release papers. So we had him out that uh, 
That night, about, about six, seven about six, seven o'clock. Oh. You finally got him out. Right on! Yeah, that's awesome, Congratulations! Oh, yeah, that's that was, it was a beautiful feeling to have your son back after all that time. Oh, it was oh. a tremendous feeling. Man, yep. I can only imagine. Man, only imagine. Um, I just wanted to say two other things uh, before we have to end here. Um, one is is that uh, our settlement was in large part based on Eduardo's memorandum. You know, they agreed to do what he said was constitutionally required in his memorandum. And then the other thing I wanted to say is um, you can't just look at it as this professor, a lawyer and and Eduardo and the other prisoners. There were a lot of groups and organizations that were critical. Uh, the Center for Constitutional Rights, which I was at that point the president of and gave us a, the, their support, uh, a California legal group, the um Legal services for prisoners with children, uh, the um, law firm finally of Wild Gottschall Managers, which came in and was able to fund. I mean, we had to spend, you know, this was a hundred, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on right. litigating this case. Yeah, the, the California um, prison focus, the California yeah, families California against solitary focus. confinement. Right. Right. Uh, so I was going to say Dolores's group, California's family against solitary confinement. And then as we just heard, all the families. Right. And a lot of these guys had been kept going by their wives, their kids, their fathers, their mothers. And uh, that was a critical aspect of the whole support of all, all this. So it was really a common, combined effort of a lot of groups and people that brought this all together to happen. And, and so, you know, and, and, and them guys, they managed, we've managed to get them out of solitary but they're still at a, a, a huge disadvantage for the experience that they had. Um, a lot of them, they're, they're eligible for parole, but they won't let them go. Right. And so you, you talk about, okay, we made a mistake, we're going to correct it, but they still hold power and control over these people and keeping them um, from, from being granted parole. And that's something that uh, hopefully we can, in the future, um, get into because these guys are good people smart intelligent they have they have something to say and they, and they can make a difference in our society right you know nobody's nobody's doing cholo gang banging uh you know we're all i would say you know we're all having a, an idea of coming together improving our conditions improving our communities and um so the struggle is still there there's a lot of people in there now they may not be they may not be in the shoe, but they're still in prison and they should be paroled. Right. And right now the prison they still have full control over that process and they still do exactly whatever they want to do. Right. Which we've already seen how they can abuse their power. Yep. And uh, in the parole context, it's something that we need to look into. I, I haven't done enough research on it, but as I go forward, I, I would like to get into that. See if we can um, get them to to treat people fairly treat them equally, give them parole if they're eligible and if they've done everything they need to do. Let me ask you something in, in regards to that then. So with the laws that have come into place over, I'll just say the last 20 years, uh, the Senior Act, so uh, if you give them X amount of years and you're 60 years old and you've served 25 years, they're going to... You don't have action at that if you they're going to hold the shit from the shoe over so you, right? I I, I could come comes to mind the guy he qualifies for the youth offender parole hearing because he was 
17, 18, and he qualifies for the elder one because he's over 60. He's got the two, right? The before he's, he's, 23 and, and he's the still there. Still and there. So this guy, he's 57. Damn, dude. He's 57. He's, they want him to do, to, he wanted, they sent him back for three more years. Now, this guy, he should have been paroled. And I remember he came back from his parole hearing and, uh, you know, Kind of defeated, kind of defeated, you know. And why did they want three more years from me? I just gave him everything. He's been doing everything, programs and self-help, education, you know, completely changed his life. They still want to get three years out. It was an injustice, and it's like beating a dead horse. The guy, mm-hmm. what do you, you want to get him to? He's 60? Okay, well, fuck it, get him to his 60. Mm-hmm. Does he even care about getting out anymore? Right. His family, right. his hopes, they were all hoping for him to get paroled. Mm-hmm. And then he comes back from his hearing, and, and and you can just, you can feel it, you know, and, and you feel you feel what he's going through. It's not right. It's not right. And I think that's, uh, you know, it shows that the retaliation continues. These individuals, you know, were able to penetrate a system that they thought could never be abolished, the practice of indefinite solitary confinement on arbitrary purposes. So they thought, okay, well, you got us there, which they thought would never, you know, end. Uh, so now what they're doing is the retaliation continues. These individuals that have been held in solitary confinement continue to be held in prison even though they have done absolutely everything that they could possibly do to gain the parole, you know, with the programs and the rehabilitation and everything else. And this is exactly why the struggle continues. And this is exactly why, you know, I just want to shout out Danny Murillo. Uh, When we started in the last hunger strike, 2013, he was the only face we had of somebody that made it out of prison that had been in solitary. And if I tell you, he was from Northern California to Southern California yeah, and Danny there Marillo. with the families, you know, and, and then mm-hmm. he brought us in to partner with you for these right. podcasts. Right. And another thing that Jules Lobel mentioned, you know, just everybody, it was such a big picture. I mean, the people that embraced the families from academia, they had us doing panels in universities to churches, had us in platforms presenting to their church members of what the, the, was going the on. The gay and lesbian community supported us because when they get incarcerated, they isolate them. Right. right. They and, automatically and, and go to And we, we, we appreciated that, you know, that, that we all come together and we all go through certain things regardless of where we come from, our color, um, our sexual preference even, you know. I think there's a big, big narrative in this whole thing about people coming together you hear about the attorneys coming together with the inmates so right. that they could better formulate you hear about the inmates putting down their color lines to come together right you hear about the families coming together with the attorneys and the inmates and it's like it's just a big big reminder that if like you always say if we really want to change things we're gonna have to come together we have to come together in order to change things right um that is a great um note to uh, I, I, um, I think it's a great note to end on. I don't know if this is... Yeah, 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 yeah. No, you, your intuition is correct, yep. Professor. And so why don't you tell us, Jules LaBelle, I can't think of a more richly, princely sounding name. Yeah. Jules LaBelle. <laughs> Jules LaBelle. Let us know what's coming up for you. Let everybody know uh, if there's anything coming up for you that you want them to know about. Um... Nope, I I, uh, I continue to do this work. It's a day-to-day, month-to-month work, and I've been writing about this case and trying to meet, you know, keep up the ties with the people who are the great people I've gotten to know in this case. All right. Dolores and Jack Morris and, and Eduardo. Thank and I'm you. I'm glad to meet his father. 
Yes, and thank you very much for your time on this show. Eduardo, uh, what's coming up for you in the future? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in school, I'm working. Um, I'm, in a, I'm looking forward to creating a nonprofit. I want to I wanna get a nonprofit. I want a team of attorneys. They, I want to focus on juvenile rights, advocate right. for juvenile rights and the parents of juveniles. When the state wants to take your child, you need to have more say-so, meaningful say-so in how th- that child is going to be treated. So um, I have a goal of having my own nonprofit with a team of lawyers uh, under me. We're going to look at every state and go challenge the laws, make sure everyone's treated fairly, equally, and um, I, I feel good about that. The professor, he, he, um, I, he, he, he's, he's a good example of, of what we, what one person can do, and uh, he's made a huge difference in corrections, improving our conditions, and uh, it's it's a lot of work to be done. A lot of work to be done. I'm down to do it. Yeah. Awesome, Dolores. Tell yeah. us what's in the future. Thank you so much. Well, you know, hopefully continuing this platform and raising awareness, and we are going to launch our website abolishsolitary.org within the next week. Mm. We want to uh, start petitioning the governor, not just to end the practice of solitary confinement, but to begin uh, releasing these individuals that are yes. being held, yes. uh, still continuing to be held on arbitrary practices and and the use of confidential information, where they actually, you know, they have no due process to ever question the person that's making the allegations against right, them. Right, right. So, they can yeah. say anything. That's right. inhumane right that's there. Right. Right? Yep, that's right. Yep, that's it. All right. Edward, Eduardo's dad, what do you got in the future, sir? What's Jesse, coming up? You, Jesse? my son. That's it. <laughs> that's the right answer. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, Blue Eyes, you got anything for us, partner? I just wanted to say I every podcast that we have uh, on this topic, I'm just more and more appalled by the CDC and what's going on and and it seems like every time you got to dink and dunk to try to get these rights, that should be, you know, they should be taken. This state should be doing their their work. You know what I mean? It's uh, it's just it's it's draining to see that this is this is still going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean at movemental.media. Thank you, Sean. Right on. Um, I just want to thank I want to thank all of you for coming down today. It was really good to yes, have sir. you. Really good to hear your story, man. Thank Inspirational, you. man. You're you're a man about change, and you're doing it, and it's an honor to have you in here and and to hear your story. And I'm just I'm just glad you made it out, man. I'm glad. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Um, I appreciate it. I appreciate you guys uh, taking on this issue and addressing it in a comprehensive way. I hope that we reach people and that we can start to change the minds and make a difference. Well, yes, sir. What? You have an open door policy carte to, blanche to come back here nice. so as you start getting your nonprofit, as you have topics that you feel are important that you want to spread awareness yes sir we'll exchange our numbers and you have a place here at the hard luck show thank talk you about and it. i right want out. to extend that carte blanche to professor lobel this is yeah. an intelligent man this yes. is clearly a man of letters <laughs> and a man of heart and uh, I'm curious to find out if he's got other topics that he'd like to talk about. I'd like to yeah. actually extend our pro- our platform to that, too, because yes, we have a ton of, les- of listeners who uh, would benefit from hearing these ideas. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be on the show. I, I, it was really a fun experience. And thank you very much. Awesome. Like we do about this time, adios amigos from The Hard Luck Show. <laughs>
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.